Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. Now, this is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. During the 50s and 60s, Chess Records was the place to record the blues, but it also had a major role in shaping rock and roll. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Cowd of the Chicago Tribune. Jim and I will talk about the history and influence of the great Chess Records, and later we're going to review the new album from Danger Mouse, Sparkle Horse, and director David Lynch. That's all coming up today on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. Time now for some music news. That is Carrie Underwood, a voice that has sold nearly 12 million records in the last decade and established American Idol as one of the music industry's juggernauts. Well, that juggernaut is undergoing some massive changes in the last few months, and it looks like a whole lot more are in store. For the last decade, American Idol's music has been distributed by Sony Music, a close relationship with that label and with Clive Davis, one of the executives at Sony. It appears now that American Idol will now distribute all of its music through the Universal Music Group, one of the other big four major labels. 
and transition into a new relationship with that record company headed by one Jimmy Iovine. So we go from Clive Davis, the guy who mentored people like Kelly Clarkson, to Iovine, who was the man behind big hit makers like Dr. Dre and Eminem. What is this going to mean for this franchise? It remains to be seen, but a domino effect clearly started taking place when one of the key judges on the show, Simon Cowell, announced that he was going to be resigning at the end of the ninth season. And I think Cowell saw the handwriting on the wall. Things have not been as strong for American Idol in the last few years as they were previously in this decade. The ratings have gone down about 20%. We're now talking about 25 million viewers a week, down from a peak in 2006. And we're talking about sluggish record sales. The last few winners and runners-up, people like Lee DeWise, Crystal Bowersox, Chris Allen, Adam Lambert, haven't been selling nearly as well as the Carrie Underwoods and Kelly Clarkson's did earlier in the decade. So clearly, the American Idol brain trust saw it was time for a change. Not only are they changing the judges, Cowell is leaving, but uh, Ellen DeGeneres is out. Cara Diaguardi appears to be leaving as well. At the time of this recording, Steven Tyler and Jennifer Lopez were strongly rumored to be replacing them. In addition to changing those judges, it looks like they're changing a distributor as well. So a major, major change is afoot for one of the major forces in the music business. Greg, there's an interesting story out of Iran that's been getting a lot of attention among political columnists, but it really is a music story. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, had put out what's being called the harshest statement about culture since the revolution in the late 70s. He said, of music, promoting and teaching it is not compatible with the highest values of the sacred regime of the Islamic Republic. Despite centuries of wonderful music, coming out of Persia. There's been an anti-music drive since the Iranian Revolution in 79. It began to loosen up in the 90s, but in the last couple of years it's become harsher again. And now with this statement, it's believed that music is going to be outlawed entirely in Iran. It is not traditional music from that part of the world, I think, that is making the powers that be concerned. It's Western influence. This is what most of the reporters on the ground say. There's a wonderful scene in that movie Persepolis. I don't know if you saw it. 2007, the uh, animated film based on Marjan Satrapi's graphic novel autobiography, where as a young girl in the harsh cultural environment of Iran, she comes across some cassette tapes by Iron Maiden, Michael (laughs) Jackson, and Metallica. And these expand her worldview and make her realize there is life outside of Iran. It's a wonderful moment, and clearly it's one that the Iranian powers do not want young people in that country to have. Just can't keep 
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the great Muddy Waters with I Can't Be Satisfied from 1947. He was in the studio that day with Leonard Chess, the man who would go on to found Chess Records on the south side of Chicago, one of the great blues labels of all time. A classic side, as they said back in the day, Mr. Cott. I think we take the chess story for granted because we're here in Chicago, you and me. Between the two of us, 40 years of experience as a rock critic and journalist in this town, neither of us had ever had the experience of touring chess records at that famous address, 2120 South Michigan. Mm -hmm. Rolling Stones named an instrumental track after it. Until just a couple weeks ago, we had a public radio event there, and we got to lead groups of our listeners in Chicago through the studios. It was magical. You know, it's really sad that Motown in Detroit and Sun Records down south, you know, these are museums now, Mm -hmm. as well they should be. But Chess Records, it's nominally open to the public, but really you hardly ever have the opportunity to get in there. This was a rare treat for us, and it got us thinking, we really should do a show about the Chess Records story, especially because there have been a couple of good books about it in recent years, including Nadine Cahotis' Spinning Blues into Gold, and two movies, Cadillac Records, starring none other than Beyonce, and uh, Who Do You Love? Both films came out in 2008. So we're way overdue to look at chess. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. The uh, influence of the label goes on to this day. There arguably would not have been a uh, swinging London scene in the 60s without the influence of what was going on in Chicago in the 50s and 60s. The story starts with these two brothers, Leonard and Phil Chess. Born in Poland, Leonard in 1917, Phil in 1921. The family moved to Chicago in 1928. They were just boys. The family ran a junkyard in a Southside neighborhood adjacent to a black neighborhood. So Leonard and Phil grew up hearing the sounds of the gospel church wafting into their workplace and into their neighborhood. So they understood black culture by living so close to it. Leonard himself was a businessman first and foremost. He saw that there was money to be made in these neighborhoods, and he opened up a series of liquor stores in the 40s and eventually opened up a nightclub there in 1946, the Macambo Lounge. He was a connoisseur, though, of music as well. He understood that if this nightclub was to work, he needed to make it a place that was about the music, a place that the musicians wanted to hang out in, and it worked. He got the cream of Chicago's blues crop to attend his joint. Willie Dixon first and foremost among them, but a lot of national acts passing through town would go there for late night drinks to attend the jam sessions. He understood and saw the appeal that this music had in that community. Very significant fact about the African-American population in Chicago between 1940 and 1950. It increased 77% with the diaspora from the plantations in the South to the factories in the North. And as a result, you had a half million African-Americans in Chicago by 1950, a ready-made audience for this style of music. Significant event, 1945. Muddy Waters is moving into Chicago. He's opening up for Big Bill Brunzi in the clubs. Muddy Waters goes electric. Had some hard days out in the falling rain. Wasn't that a crime shake? 
Everybody talks about Dylan going electric in 65. Well, Muddy Waters went electric in 45. The reason? Those raucous nightclubs. He needed to be heard. He was already an established musician. He had been recorded by Alan Lomax on a plantation in the South in the early 40s. But when he came to Chicago, that acoustic stuff wasn't flying in those noisy clubs. So he had to get an electric guitar. And that was one of the things that would, I don't want to get ahead of the story, but without Muddy plugging in, Mm -hmm. you'd never have rock and roll. And another thing, Ike Turner early on, the Chesses had a a hand in uh, Rocket 88, which would be other key step toward rock and roll. You women have heard of Jalopy, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's straight, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along. What we're seeing here is the foundation of not only the sound of electric instruments moving in, but the attitude that it would inform rock and roll in later years. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're discussing the landmark blues label Chess Records. Jim, later on we're going to talk about Chess Records' role in shaping rock, but first we should point out what I think are the four key elements in this chain of Chess Records' ascent. It started out as a label, 1947, Leonard Chess brought into Aristocrat Records and slowly but surely ended up buying more and more of the company until it became his own. In 1950, it morphed into Chess Records, which he brought in his brother Phil to help run. Meanwhile, he was in the studio consistently with this local talent, Muddy Waters first and foremost among them. I Can't Be Satisfied helped put Chess on the map in a sense, one of the first singles on that aristocrat label, Leonard Chess said, hey, this stuff is going to sell. Let's do some more of this stuff. In 1948, even bigger single, Rolling Stone. Well, I wish I was a catfish Women in a deep blue sea I would have all you Looking women fishing, fishing after me, showing up after me, showing up after me. Oh, love, oh, love, showing up. Here is the song that gives the Rolling Stones their name, Rolling Stone Magazine its name, and essentially Muddy Waters is off and rolling as a major northern superstar. But he's still recording as pretty much a solo act. It's basically Muddy Waters and his electric guitar in the studio. Meanwhile, he's in the clubs and he's recruiting talent. They hear that voice, that guitar, they want to be part of his band. So slowly but surely he starts accumulating talent. Little Walter Jacobs on harmonica, Jimmy Rogers on guitar, Elgin Evans on drums, Otis Spann on piano. He's got this amazing blues band cooking in the clubs. 
Leonard Chess was a smart man and also a conservative man in some ways. It took him a while to get to the idea of, well, let's put Muddy in the studio with his guys rather than mine. Slowly but surely, he was assembling studio musicians around Muddy. Eventually, he let Muddy Waters start recording with his band. And I think a big turning point for Muddy was in 1954, January 54, Chess Records was up and running at this point. Leonard Chess says to Muddy, go ahead, let's record you and your band. The added caveat here was Willie Dixon, who was basically the in-house producer and in-house bass player for Chess Records at that point, was going to add a song to the template here. So Muddy, for the first time, was in the studio with Willie Dixon recording one of his songs, Hoochie Coochie Man. The gypsy woman told my mother Before I was born You got a boy child coming He gonna be a son of a gun he gonna make pretty women's jump and shout. Then the world wanna know what this all about. But you know I'm here. Everybody knows I'm here. Well, you know I'm a hoochie coochie man. Willie Dixon's approach was he heard that Muddy Waters voice. He said, this guy shouldn't be singing sad songs. We need some pet blues, what he called some upbeat, energetic, machismo stuff here. So he laid a song on Muddy that Muddy probably never would have sang on his own. Muddy was a much more subtle artist. There was nothing very subtle about Hoochie Coochie Man, but there it was, a magical moment with that band and that song in the studio that day. I really think, Jim that that moment in 1954 was a significant turning point, not only in the history of Muddy Waters, but in the course of the label, and also in marking a huge influence on future generations of rock and rollers who heard that moment and said, you know what, we want a piece of that action. We want that machismo, that attitude, that swagger that you hear in this particular song. So besides Waters, there were three other significant artists in the Chess Records stable at that point. Just as powerful a vocalist, and in some ways even more over the top, was Howlin' Wolf, a.k.a. Chester Burnett. He was a little bit older than Muddy. By the time he came to Chicago, he was already a fully seasoned artist in many ways. He'd done some recording with Sam Phillips down in Memphis already, that famous label that founded Elvis Presley. But then he started recording exclusively with Chess beginning in 1953. And one of his key moves, he recorded with various musicians throughout his career and, and, and toured with various bands, is that he had to have one guy at his side at all times, and that was Hubert Sumlin on guitar. So just about every classic track you hear from Howlin' Wolf on chess was accompanied by Hubert Sumlin as the guitar player. And a great moment for them was the song Smokestack Lightning in 1956. Classic Wolf track in that it has literally no chord changes, you know? <laughs> it's all about that little Sumlin riff and that inimitable Howlin' Wolf vocal. It is a bit of a howl. It's almost like a yodel, but no one else could do it like Howlin' Wolf could. Oh, 
That is Howlin' Wolf with Smokestack Lightning, recorded in 1956 at Chess Records. We're going to continue discussing the legacy of chess in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ and PRX. And then Greg and I will review the long-awaited collaboration between Danger Mouse, Sparkle Horse, and director David Lynch. back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, and I'm here with Greg Cott, and that is Blues with a Feeling by Little Walter, recorded in 1953 at Chess Records. We're talking about the history of that great blues label and its influence on rock and roll. Now, Greg, you were taking us through some of the touchstones of the early years in the 50s, first with Muddy Waters and then Howlin' Wolf, and now we come to Little Walter. That's right, Jim. Marion Walter Jacobs, who was part of Muddy Waters' band but he was also a solo artist in his own right. And the thing about Jacobs was that he was a virtuoso harmonica player. I mean, people were making comparisons to him and Charlie Parker on the saxophone. Mm. That's what he did with the blues harmonica. He was so good that he played on countless sessions for other artists as well as his own. But Dixon saw a great artist in his own right and actually wrote one of Chess Records' biggest songs for Little Walter to sing. It was called My Babe in 1955. My baby don't stand no cheating, my babe Oh yeah, she don't stand no cheating, my babe Oh yeah, she don't stand no cheating She don't stand none of that midnight creeping, my babe True little baby, my babe One of Walter's uh, innovations was to amplify his instrument. Just as Muddy made the switch from acoustic to electric guitar, little Walter was tired of having the harmonica play a background role in those clubs. So his little innovation was to cup it in his hands alongside the harmonica so that the harmonica could be heard as a lead instrument right alongside the voice and guitar in those ensembles. ¶¶ 
course, the other master harmonica player and the other great chess artist of those early years, Sonny Boy Williamson II, Alec Rice Miller, actually born in Louisiana. Most of these other guys were from Mississippi. And again, about a decade or two older than some of these other musicians. He had been playing all over the South for a long time, but enjoyed his biggest success once he got up north and once he started recording with chess. His classic song for chess, among many, was his number three hit from 1955, Don't Start Me to Talking. Well, I'm going down the road and stopping Fanny Mae. Gonna tell her Fanny what I heard. A boyfriend said, don't start me talking. I'll tell her everything I know. I'm gonna break up this signifying. Cause somebody's got to go. Now, the great story about Sonny Boy is that after this great success with chess, he started going on tour in Europe, and this kind of leads us up to this rock and roll generation, Jim. He was a volatile guy. I mean, these were somewhat unstable individuals, you know? Well, you know, you can't neglect the fact that Muddy, Howlin' Wolf, Dixon, these were big men. Yes. I mean, really, really big men, and as you and I found out, Chess is a small place. Yeah. There was no air conditioning because yeah. it would have interfered with the noise. What everybody talks about with chess, and this was gone when we were there, is the smell. Yeah. The testosterone and the sweat in those rooms. Oh, absolutely. And Sonny Boy epitomized that. And more so than other ones, he was sort of rooted in that southern culture. Whereas Howlin' Wolf became you know, a relatively sophisticated guy. I mean, he went back and got his diploma from high school. He learned how to read and write later on in his life. Muddy Waters himself was a very well-spoken man. But Sonny Boy, there was a little bit of that Deep South, eye-for-an-eye culture in him all along. When he went to Europe in, in the 60s, the story goes that he once set fire to his hotel room because he tried to cook a rabbit with his coffee maker. <laughs> And then apparently he had to leave the tour because he stabbed somebody. So, uh, you know, Sonny Boy was carrying that reputation around with him. So a wide variety of artists, but huge, oversized personalities recording for Chess Records in the 50s. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Burgatis. He's Greg Cott, and we are talking about the legacy and the incredible music of Chess Records. Greg, that was a, a great story, mm-hmm. a great myth, perhaps, about Sonny Boy. While we're on the subject of mythology, and before we segue into the rock and roll years, you have an interesting take on that legendary tale of the Rolling Stones coming up to 2120 South Michigan and finding... Yes, they found Muddy Waters painting the walls, apparently, in his off days... Apparently, Muddy would just come and sit around the studio and help out with whatever was needed. The Stones were aghast that here was the great Muddy Waters helping them carry their gear into the studio (laughs) when they came to America for the first time. And this was the promised land for them. You know, it was interesting. When the Stones finally got to America in the summer of 64, their greatest goal was to go to Chicago to the chess studios at 2120 South Michigan Avenue and record there because they wanted that sound, and they got it. Uh, Ron Mallow, the engineer, was there, the one who had recorded a lot of the uh, chess artists, and he gave the Stones that Chicago sound, that grit that they were looking for on those early Stones records. But it was interesting that they found that these musicians were just sort of like regular guys. They weren't these icons that they heard on the record. They were just regular Southside people 
who were kind of looking at them as curiosity, saying, what are these long-haired guys from England doing here? You know, yeah. why are they here? Obviously an attitude that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards have not maintained. Yes. You know, they wanted to be royalty, and they are. We're a decade into the story. Obviously, chess is the most important label in the history of the blues, but there were other sounds that they began to explore. There was some great jazz music came out on mm-hmm. chess. Later on, there was the soul era, epitomized by Hedda James. I mean, what a voice. But I want to talk in particular about the rock and roll years. 1955, this fella, Ellis McDaniel, who had built himself a homemade guitar in Woodshop yeah. in one of the Chicago public schools, comes in. And he's got this song, Uncle John. Uncle John don't shuck no corn. Uncle John got daughters ain't never been, right? And he's laying it down, and something's not going right. The recording engineer says, hey, you know, we got we to come up with some other lyrics. And the story goes, Leonard Chess, or the recording engineer, says, you know, how about Bo Diddley? Say, say, say Bo Diddley. That kind of is in the same cadence. I don't know what it means. doesn't mean anything. And, of course, Bo Diddley becomes one of the founding fathers of rock and roll. That rhythm, that groove, that unique guitar sound. And arguably, you could say of hip-hop as well. Sure. You know, a lot of those early doubt. Bo Diddley tracks, right? Now, when I was a little boy, at the age of five, I had something in my pocket, keep a lot of folks alive. Now I'm a man, May 21, you know baby, we can have a lot of fun, I'm a man, I spell M. Almost at the same time, a guy from St. Louis winds up on the scene, Chuck Berry. He has a song that Leonard Chess likes. It's called Ida Red. It's got a good rhythm. It's got a killer hook. But something's missing. You know, Ida Red just isn't flowing off the tongue. The story goes that Leonard Chess sees one of the secretaries with a makeup kit, and he says to Chuck, you should sing Maybelline. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Maybelline becomes another of the key singles where you say rock and roll really starts here with Bo Diddley with Chuck Berry. Maybelline. Why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You done started doing the things you used to do. As I was motivating over the hill, I saw Maybelline in a coupe bill. A Cadillac rolling on an open road, nothing out to run my V8 boat. A Cadillac doing about 95, moves bumper to bumper, rolling side to side. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? I think this is a good time to mention that there's a fair amount of controversy about the way that Leonard and Phil Chess did business. When Maybelline comes out on a 45, Chuck Berry is surprised to see that he wrote this song 
with a guy named Alan Freed and another guy <laughs> named Russ Fredo. Yeah. Russ Fredo was the landlord at 2120 South Michigan, and the Chess Brothers owed him some cash, so they cut him in on the song. Alan Freed, of course, was the disc jockey, mm-hmm. who, in addition to getting songwriting credit on Chuck's song, was getting paid $100 a week to play mm. the songs the Chess Brothers were delivering. It's a complicated question, the whole payola issue. I mean, you know, thank God Alan Freed played Maybelline. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best songs in history. Mm-hmm. We'd have no rock and roll without it. And a lot of people defend the Chess Brothers by saying, yeah, Leonard screwed people, but he screwed them honest. <laughs> Part of it was an inherent cheapness. There are stories that Leonard Chess would fix the toilet himself in the studios rather than pay a plumber six ninety five. There was that paternalism. If we hadn't given one of the artists a Cadillac, which is where Cadillac Records took the name, he would have just drank all the money or gambled it away. Complicated issues, well dealt with in the books about chess records. We're concentrating on the music, but we just had to mention that. In any event, Greg, it was the rock and roll era that took chess to the next level. They had been selling in the tens of thousands of copies of records of those classic blues artists, suddenly they were selling hundreds of thousands Mm -hmm. and eventually a million. You know, at the height of the chess story, 200 employees putting out 200 records a year and making $3 million a year. But it wouldn't last much longer, really just another decade. By 1969, Leonard Chess was dead, the company was sold for a couple of million dollars, and it's really the end of the chess story. But if we look at the the role that that label had played in forming the blues and Mm -hmm. giving it a shape and an aesthetic in many of its key records, and then in rock and roll, on top of the jazz and soul contributions, you got to say, it's right up there with Sun Records or Motown. Without a doubt, one of the most extraordinary labels of the 20th century. And in those two decades, as you said, Jim, uh, basically created a template for a lot of the music that we're still hearing, you know, here in the 21st century. Uh, How did these artists influence the future of music? Uh, Let me count the ways. I mean, first of all, you mentioned hip-hop, which I thought was a great parallel, Jim. The fact that when you think about Bo Diddley's music or Holland Wolf's vocals or Muddy Waters' phrasing, you can clearly hear that, that megaphone style of Chuck D of Public Enemy or early run DMC, all the way up through the contemporary stuff, that swagger, that braggadocio, that was all in some of those early chess singles by these urban blues artists. Think about songwriting. Willie Dixon alone supplied about two or three decades worth of hits for subsequent rock acts. I mean, you think about the Rolling Stones covering his Little Red Rooster, or Led Zeppelin doing his You Shook Me, or The Doors doing Backdoor Man, Cream doing Spoonful and Sitting on Top of the World, The Yardbirds and Aerosmith doing Smokestack Lightning, Hendrix and the Allman Brothers covering I'm Your Hoochie Coochie Man, Foghat doing I Just Want to Make Love to You. I mean, Willie Dixon basically supplied several generations of rockers with songs that they are still recording and still making royalties off of. Make love to 
want you to be no slave. I don't want you to work all day. I don't want you to be sad and blue. I just want to make love to you. Last but not least, the guitar stylists. When you think about that impassioned Chicago blues style, it was interesting to draw the distinctions. There were various styles of blues guitar playing, but the toughest of them all was that Chicago blues sound. When you think about the sound of Eric Clapton and Peter Green and Jeff Beck in 60s swing in London, they were directly referencing the hardest edge sounds that they could find, and they all were coming out of Chicago. So the influence was huge, instrumentally, vocally, lyrically, and with the songs. A lot of stuff out of the Chess Records stable in the 50s came to be a big part of rock and roll in the 60s, 70s, and beyond. Greg, to wrap up our discussion of chess records, we each wanted to uh, pick a song that we love to highlight the legacy of chess might be a little bit lesser known than some of those hits, which are endless. I want to talk about Bobby Charles, originally Bobby Charles Guidry of Abbeville, Louisiana. He was a Cajun and a uh, great talent who started making music as a teenager. He recorded a song variably called Later Alligator or See You Later Alligator <laughs> or Just Alligator and sent it up north and Chess put it out. And it was a minor hit, became a much bigger hit for Bill Haley, who covered it, had a smash with it. But the Chess brothers were excited because they got the publishing money, so they were making a lot of money. So they flew this kid up this incredible voice, and, and they were confident he was going to be one of the next big stars. They pick him up at the airport, or Phil picks him up, and he gets off the plane, and Phil says, oh my God, my <laughs> brother is going to freak. He's this white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed mm-hmm. teenager kid. They were confident. He, he was an older black guy. That <laughs> voice, that voice could not have been coming from mm-hmm. this person who's walking off the plane. He had a pretty distinguished career, would go on to write some hits for Fats Domino. He's in The Last Waltz, singing behind Ray Charles, mm-hmm. but you don't really see him in the movie. And he just died early this year in January. Let's play Bobby Charles's Alligator here on Sound Opinions. I saw my baby walking with another man today. Well, I saw my baby walking with another man today. When I asked her what's the matter, this is what I heard her say. See you later, alligator. After one crocodile. See you later, alligator. After one crocodile. That I 
you later, alligator. After all, crack it on. Bobby Charles with See You Later, Alligator on Sound Opinions. Good choice, Mr. DeRogatis. Digging deep in that chess catalog. What a treasure trove of artists they recorded in the 50s and 60s. You know, another artist that was destined for obscurity in the chess vaults because he really didn't quite fit in with Leonard Chess's vision of what the blues was. And it's hard to believe that this is the case now. But I'm talking about Buddy Guy. In the 60s, he couldn't get an audience with Leonard Chess to record yeah. an album or record a single. He had to beg for studio time. They loved having Buddy in the studio as a sideman. He was a great guitar player. But in terms of a recording artist in his own right, he had real difficulty getting established with Chess. And here's the deal with that. When Buddy came to Chicago from Louisiana in the mid-50s, he was already a step or two behind that pantheon of Chicago blues acts. He kind of knew he had to prove himself all over again with people like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Otis Rush already on the scene. So he needed to make a name for himself desperately in the clubs and establish a guitar style and a showmanship and a persona that was a cut above in terms of just being a little bit more over the top. It was blues and anticipating what rock and roll would become. A lot of people said Hendrix took a lot of tricks from Buddy Guy. When Buddy Guy went to Europe in the 60s, he caused a sensation because Clapton, Beck, Hendrix all saw him over there and they couldn't believe what this guy was doing with the guitar, the kind of showmanship, and also just the fierceness, the dynamics of the guitar playing way above and beyond anything they'd heard on any blues record before or since in a lot of ways. He was ahead of his time. He was so ahead of his time that Leonard really refused to record him. Nonetheless, there was a few moments where Buddy got into the studio, was able to record a few singles, and you can hear, it's like a stallion kicking at his stall, you know, like ready to bust out. He's being harnessed, but he's still got this talent that he wants to show the world. And even though the guitar style was somewhat muted, they really wouldn't let him take off. You know, no five-minute solos for Buddy like he was playing in the clubs. It was like, okay, you gotta, you're, you're just playing fills here, Buddy. But then you could hear him making up for it with the vocals, the, the intensity of the vocals. And I think you can really hear it on one of his first chess singles in 1960. It's a song called First Time I Met the Blues, and it was written by the piano player in the song, Little Brother Montgomery. An intense, intense vocal performance by Buddy Guy and those knife-like guitar fills. You can already hear the guy he would become, the tremendously influential guitar player he would become on this very early track. And in addition, I love the way the track personifies the blues, like he's being stalked by the blues. He cannot escape its grip. First time I met the blues, Buddy Guy from 1960 on Sound Opinions. The first time I met the blues He and I was walking I was walking down through the woods. Yeah, the first time, the first time I met you, blue. Blue, you know I was walking. I was walking down through the woods. Yeah. Let me out of the house, let you go. 
That's First Time I Met the Blues by Buddy Guy, one of the standout artists on the chess roster in its later days, and one of the musicians who would help bring the blues to rock and roll. If you want to talk about your favorite chess recordings or give us your buy it, burn it, trash it album reviews, call our hotline at 888-859-1800. Next up, we'll review Danger Mouse and Sparkle Horse present Dark Night of the Soul. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. I walk 47 miles of barbed wire. I use a cobra snake for a necktie. I got a brand new house on the roadside, made from rattlesnake hide. I got a brand new chimney made on top, made out of a human skull. Now come on, take a little walk with me, Arlene, and tell me who do you love? Who do you love? Just 22 and I don't mind dying Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? I rode around the town, use a rattlesnake whip Take it easy, Ollie, don't give me no lip Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you Sound Opinions, you are listening to the title track of Danger Mouse and Sparkle Horse present Dark Night of the Soul, which features none other than film director David Lynch on vocals, Greg, and music by Danger Mouse and Sparkle Horse. Danger Mouse being the DJ and producer Brian Burton, one of the most acclaimed producers of recent years, his work with Beck, his work with Norris Barkley, and Sparkle Horse Mark Linkus, the main man who operated under that band name one of the most touching and idiosyncratic but truly extraordinary singers and songwriters of the last decade. This is an album that ranks up there with Prince's Black Album or the Beach Boys' Smile in that it almost never came out. Mm-hmm. And it was starting to become more and more legendary for the fact that nobody was going to hear it over the last year. It got tied up in a bunch of red tape legal wrangling a year ago between Danger Mouse's label EMI and the artists who wanted to make it. The idea was... Linkus had written this set of songs, Danger Mouse was going to produce them, and they were going to bring in a bunch of guest vocalists, each 
taking their turn at the mic, while David Lynch put together a book of 100 photographs in classic David Lynch style to somehow tell the story of all of this. In addition to the legal wrangling making news about this, Greg, there is the sad fact that Linkus committed suicide a couple of months ago, as did one of the vocalists, Vic Chestnut. So Dark Knight of the Soul has literally become a very portentous title. Not that the music wasn't dark enough already. What do we get from this set of collaborations? We'll give our opinions on the music in a minute and rate it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. But let's play a song first. This is called Jacob, J-A-Y-K-U-B, and it features vocalist Jason Lytle of Granddaddy. Here it is on Sound Opinions. Jacob, it's time for you to wake up and accept your That's Jacob from Jason Lytle, formerly of Granddaddy, from the new Danger Mouse and Sparkle Horse record. Danger Mouse and Sparkle Horse present Dark Night of the Soul. Lytle gets it. He gets the concept. He got the music from Linkus. He got the production notes from Danger Mouse, and he completely fit into the concept with his lyrics and approach to that song, that wan, wistful blend, you know, introspection, biting candor, a little bit of dread underneath it all. There are strong tracks on here from Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips and Griff Reese, and I love the James Mercer track as well. But a few of the guys didn't appear to get the memo about what this record's supposed to be about. I don't think they understood the concept very well. You know, Black Francis, Iggy Pop, I'm, I think their tracks are completely out of place here. They completely disrupt that dark night of the soul mood that they're trying to create. And David Lynch, I'm sorry, you know, you're a great director, but I really don't want to hear you sing or speak <laughs> or whatever it is you're doing on these tracks. That's those harsh. Com- that's, that's, that's like the coda. Don't be so <laughs> yeah. hard on him. Yeah, those are just throwaways. And again, disrupting the mood. So as an album, it really doesn't work as an album. But I will say, I will recommend burning it for one track and one track alone, and that is the collaboration between Chestnut and Linkus on the track Grim Augury. Chestnut takes the vocals. You've got uh, Linkus playing this uh, wan octagon keyboard instrument in the background. It is a perfect mood piece. Both our families are to gathering. We're cutting a baby out. 
going to remember those guys it's a great way for them to be remembered as the final collaboration on this record i tell you greg one of the things that disappoints me is that you don't have danger mouse uh, brian burton stretching far outside of a comfort zone linkus has written a great set of songs but to me the magic of sparkle horse always was the way he delivered them you could not separate that voice and that delivery from the songs and say this guy is just a great songwriter anybody could sing his material as this cast of revolving voices illustrates mm. Not just anybody can sing his material. Mm -hmm. I would add Julian Casablancas's song to the list of hits here. I think it's really interesting that the Strokes band leader gives us more of an idea what he can do outside of the Strokes by singing this song Little Girl than anything he did on his solo album last year. A trick that people use to make you think they're smart is confidence But it's hit and miss. Half the album's great. The other half is a letdown. So, yeah, I agree with you. This is a burn it record. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we're going to dig out some records you need to hear, our buried treasures. We have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our intern is Julia Mullen-Gordon. Our producers are Jason Saldana, who saw Blue Velvet early on and it really freaked him out, <laughs> and Robin Lynn, who loved Twin Peaks. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia. Well, let's face it, he is a racer head. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Brian from Colorado Springs. Just finished listening to your uh, country primer for rock fans. Thanks for the great show. I was brought into the country music by the Lubbock Stars, uh, the Flightlanders, and Terry Allen. I've got one minor correction for uh, your Desert Island jukebox selection of the Flatlanders Dallas. The initial eight-track release was titled All-American Music, and the band at that time was called Jimmy Dale and the Flatlanders. When it was re-released in 1994, they retitled it More a Legend Than a Band. Just wanted to let you know, and I just happened to have stumbled across a copy of the original 8-track sealed in its original package, so I've added that to my collection. Thanks for the show. Keep up the great work, and keep expanding my musical horizon. And Dallas is a jungle, but Dallas is a beautiful Did you ever see Dallas on a Hello, I'm calling from the Philadelphia area. My name is Paul Smith, and I would like to urge you all to pay attention to the people who play their instruments really well. 
who are contributing enormously to the field of rock music, specifically people like Jeff Beck and Eric Johnson. The electric guitar, as you probably know, is a pretty good-sized component of rock and roll, always has been. And you guys seem to concentrate on the people who may have some kind of quirky words but that aren't really much into playing the instruments really seriously. But the people who play the instruments well, I think, deserve notice. Thank you very much. Hey, guys. I just got through listening to the Stephen Malcolmus interviews Barry from Norman. It was cool hearing Malcolmus talk. You know, I love that guy. But every time in between every interview part where y'all are playing those songs, I was so emotionally hit where I felt like I did back in those days, full of hope and desperation, which is something I always got out of those songs. And I don't know if it was the lyrics or the whatever, but it was just this emotion that just was driven inside of those songs. Over the turnstiles and out in the traffic, there's ways of living, it's the way I'm living, right or wrong, it's all that I can Then you guys took me back to like, uh, you know, last year with Arcade Fire, and then you took me back to junior high with uh, Funkadelic, so I appreciate all the time travel, guys. Later on. My name is Catherine Page, and I'm calling from Bastrop, Texas. I just wanted to say that I love your Desert Island jukebox pick today. Can you get to that? We were huge Parliament and Funkadelic fans back in the day. Plus, in a bit of serendipity, I found myself recently downloading all kinds of stuff from that era. Bootsy, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and the great Leon and Mary Russell's wedding album. This is stuff that makes you feel good. And what a stark contrast to Arcade Fire, a band that I think perfectly encapsulates everything that's wrong with music today. Nothing but dreary dirges and white man's whinging. Hey, Arcade Fire, can you get to that? Thanks, guys. Love the show. Can you get No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.